This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Brooks, welcome back to Better Reading. Oh, thank you so much, Cheryl. It's lovely to be here again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this chat. I mean, you know, when I was doing my research, 14 books, is that right? Yeah, I, yes, I think so. Yeah, I do. Yes. I think, yeah. I'm writing either my 15th or my 16th. I'm, I can never remember. I get, yeah. Right. Which is Close good. enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fantastic. So you've written historical fiction, historical fantasy, YA fantasy, and one nonfiction. Karen was an academic for over 20 years, a newspaper columnist and social commentator. She has a PhD in English stroke cultural studies and has published internationally on all things popular culture, education, and social psychology. An award-winning teacher, she's taught throughout Australia and the Netherlands and keynoted at many education conferences. Nowadays, she finds greatest contentment studying history and writing and helping her husband in his brewery, Captain Bly's. <laughs> yes, which I'm hoping to visit. Tricks are on me. <laughs> oh, the, Karen's latest novel is called The Escapades of Tribulation Johnson. It's a brilliant recreation of the vibrant, optimistic, but politically treacherous world of London's Restoration Theatre, a place where artifice and disguise are second to nature and accommodates those who do not fit in. I want to know how you fit in all this writing. <laughs> That's what I want to know first. Uh, I don't. I don't pour beers very often. <laughs> you don't. You don't no, work no, in the brewery. No, I do. When he need, when my husband and my son work there, my son's yeah. at a, we're at a distillery as well now. So when they desperately need help, I go up and help them. And once a month, I go and pour beers for a while, which I really, really enjoy doing. And that's contact with the public. Yeah, and, getting to know uh, people. Yeah, and we call them our crew. We have regulars, yeah. which is so lovely. And we have yeah. music, so I get to enjoy it. You know, it's like having a little party once a month. Mm. Yeah, but no, otherwise I'm just at home, alone yes. with all imaginary friends. <laughs> yeah, and are you um, a disciplined writer? Are you at your desk for a few hours every day or do you have a word count or how do you manage your work life? Yeah, I, I tried to take it really seriously. So I dress for of work course. every day yeah. and I don't write in my pyjamas. I don't think I could and I will go to sleep. And, yeah, I, I spend a few hours anywhere from six, sometimes more, sometimes less, but I try to get 3,000 words a day down. Wow. Is that, see, I didn't know that was a lot until I've seen what other people do. Yes. And I used to write a lot more than that when I worked full-time as an academic and I thought 5,000 was not enough, you know. And wow. now I realise that was probably very, very good. 
thing is, as you know, sure, you go back the next day thinking, oh, I wrote 3,000 yesterday, and you go back and most of it's utter crap, you know, and you have to read. But that's fine because that happens when you write 1,000, right? I mean, yes. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've had so many conversations with authors, with writers and storytellers, but I don't think anyone's ever talked to me about writing more than 1,000 words a day. Some don't count words. They just do hours. But 3,000 to me, not being a writer, sounds a lot. Oh, well, I'm delighted to hear that. Now, I use Scrivener as my program and yeah. you set yourself up to have a word count each day. And I must admit, if I don't get over the 3,000, I feel really disappointed in myself. So I don't think I'll get there today, but that's because I'm actually, I've had to delete so much from the work in progress because mm-hmm. I'm not a, a plotter, I'm a pantser. I know how a work starts and I know how it ends, but I write myself into it quite a bit, mm. even though I'm following history. Mm. And I realised I went in a slightly different direction and mm. um, I prefer the direction I've now gone in. So I'm deleting chapters I thought I'd, I'd written, but they don't belong in the book anymore so that they go. How does that feel? Uh, well, I don't delete, delete them. Someone said, do you actually delete them? Because I, I said I killed my yeah. darlings, you know. Mm-hmm. I, said, I have a delete file. Mm. And the file currently has over 50,000 words in it. Mm. So there's a lot of writing into the novel, yeah. Mm. Okay, I want to go back to, you know, way before. So you were a journalist, is that right? Oh, no, an academic, and you yeah. wrote. Tell me about that part of your career. Were you yeah. doing that for 20 years? Yeah, over 20 years. Basically, I was a mature age student, you know, single right. mum with kids and didn't have any qualifications. Prior to that, I was in the army as an officer, and they didn't really encourage How come me. that wasn't in your biography? No, no, it's often not. I know. I don't know why not. No, I was five oh, years. Wow. Talk to me about that and why. Oh, because I didn't get into NIDA. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there you go. NIDA, the army. Yeah, army NIDA, yeah. the army. Wow. I know. I wanted to be an actress, you know, from a very young age and auditioned for NIDA, which most people mm. know, National Institute of Dramatic Art. And I got asked back for a re-audition and I still remember to this day what was said to me, oh, my God, it's so politically incorrect and inappropriate. And I won't say the name of the person because I think they're still on the scene, but they basically said to me, "Um, Karen, go and lose your virginity. I know. No. Now, the reason they said that was I was doing a scene from Romeo and Juliet. I've been asked to prepare that for my re-audition. I realised retrospectively I didn't know how to show sexual longing you know, because Juliet and Romeo are mm. just a bunch of hormones, you know, and I don't think, whereas I could read it beautifully, say it beautifully, act it beautifully, I wasn't convincing as a young hormonal girl. Mm. And I think that, that that look, he wasn't being salacious, let, let me put it that way. And so I still remember going, leaving the audition room and my girlfriend was waiting for me and she said, what'd they say? And I said, they said, go and lose your virginity. And I was like, <laughs> right, come on, let's find someone. Oh. And, um, but then I ended up basically joining the army and, um, yes. Yeah, and five. why the army? I think because my both my parents had been in it. My mother oh, right. was in the Israeli army and my father was in the Australian army. I don't know, it just gave structure and discipline and I think my mm. parents really wanted that for me after they saw acting as, you know, <laughs> dead end, mm. except for a select few and they may have well been right. And, yeah, when I... um got married and marriage fell apart. I um, didn't have any qualifications and started doing university part-time with the two littlies and um, just loved it and found, Mm. I guess, something that I really enjoyed and loved writing, loved reading, loved researching and uh, 
never left. So ended up. So were you? Did you get good grades at school? Did, were you that kind of person? Were you quite academic in your? School I was a girl of sport. Yeah, but yeah, um, good at um, English and history, but not good at maths. I failed maths yeah. and HSC, but and good at uh, physics, but not chemistry. Really weird stuff. So yes and no is the mm. answer to that. Yeah, I wasn't brilliant. I was. Mm. I was good. Talk to me about your time in the army. Okay. Well, um, well, I was in the Survey Corps, the Royal Australian Survey Corps, which is now disbanded, but it was a part of engineers. And I was the only female officer among 300 basic officers and soldiers. So I was put in charge of the women. There was probably about 20 women there. And I had a warrant officer. Um, she was really scary, but really kind. And I had some women in my troop, but I had to represent all the women at certain functions and things like that. I was often the only woman with all the men. And I was only I was only 19, like that yeah. song. It was really daunting when I look back yeah. on it. And like a lot of women in those sorts of situations, you strike misogyny, you strike being objectified, sexism, all that sort of stuff. But I also met some absolutely amazing, kind, decent men and women, you know, and mm. I, I realise I can look back on it fondly now. There was a time I couldn't, but I learned so much from it. And I think that gives me a great discipline even now, you know, to, to why run. Why couldn't you look back on it fondly? Oh, because I had some bad experiences too. And frankly, sure, I don't think I was a very good officer, you know, yeah. and I'm a bit embarrassed about that now, but I was too young to, to mm. really know what I was doing. And I think um, when I got up the ranks in academia, I hope I was a good good employer. I hope I was good to my staff then and I made up for my shortfallings when I was younger and in the army. But if I was any good in the army, it was the people that worked with me, you know, my my corporals, my my sappers, my sergeants, they were they were very generous and very kind. They teach you, you know, and they, mm. they take you under their wing and they were really good. Mm. But I love the map making part of it. I love the I'm, I still love maps. Mm. Um the cartographic aspects were fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess did it uh, set you up for some kind of discipline in your life? Did, does it help with that? Yeah, I think it does. And my husband and even my kids, they always say, Mum, whenever or Karen, whenever you say you're going to do something, you'll always do it. It's like mm. you don't volunteer, mm. you don't say, oh, unless something really, really stops you, you know. And mm. I've had that with health, you know, where I've agreed to do something and I feel so... Like I hate letting people down, you know, yeah. so it's got to be a big deal to withdraw yeah. from something once you've agreed. So yeah. I think, yeah, and, and the writing discipline that I have to be in front of my desk for a certain yeah. amount of hours, I think, yeah, I think yeah. going back to the army, I think, Dad, when I went to live with my father, I was probably 12 and he ran, I realised later, he ran the household a little bit like we were an army regiment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> my mother wasn't um, in the army at all, but I reckon that's how she raised six kids, yeah. You know, oh, right, gosh, next one, yeah. next one, next one. I mean, you know, how else do you do it? <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you get six kids to bed every night? I mean, that's I a big job. I don't have to dogs to bed. So. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So you're working, I, I mean, what stood out in your biography for me was an award-winning teacher. Now, I think there's hundreds and thousands of award-winning teachers out there, but they never get recognised. How did that work for you? Yeah, I got a university-wide award was my first one, which was just lovely. And what they do, I mean, look, it's like a lot of these things, you've got to put yourself forward or your boss puts you forward. So my boss put me forward. Mm. 
And what they do back then, what they did at the university, was they survey your students, which is quite daunting to know your students right, are going to, be yeah. to evaluate you, their marketing, yeah. and, and your colleagues put forward. So I won a university award, which was really meaningful to me that my students, mm. my, my peers rated me. But then I also got a national award, which had a cash prize with it too, that you use for to pr- improve your teaching and your research, which was just fantastic as well. So about two years after that, the university put me forward and I got a national teaching award as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. And I used the money from that. Actually, I went and taught in the Netherlands. So, And how a- did you do that? I went to a this is um but a Japanese owned university in the Netherlands that taught international students. So So it was English speaking. English, yeah, you taught in English. Mexican scholars, I worked with American scholars, uh, wow. French scholars. Yeah, it was fantastic. And the students were from across the board, but English was the common denominator. But I loved it in the um canteen because you lived in the premises too. It was fantastic. And mm. um you'd hear all these wonderful accents and you know, um wonderful rich cultural backgrounds and yeah, learn so much from that. Yeah. How long were you there? Um I did two stints there. So it was probably altogether um about five, six months. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. Travelled through Europe, you know, as well. So once you're over there. Of course. And where we were, it was literally 20 minutes by bus to Germany, two hours oh, wow. bus train to Paris, and you could walk to the Belgian border. Wow. It's yeah. mind-blowing for an Australian. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. <laughs> and extra mind-blowing for a Tasmanian, I'd yeah, imagine. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do a lot of flights go direct from Hobart or do you oh. always go have to go via Melbourne or via Sydney? Always, except no, I think we always. now have, there's a flight straight to Auckland. Right. And I love New Zealand. I must must go back there. I haven't seen that flight's been there. And I believe, but I may be wrong, there was a lot of talk about a direct flight to China, which then would change the government, went by the wayside. But I think that that's now on the cards again. So that right. would be very interesting if we can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really interesting. Okay. Um, and you loved, you clearly love teaching. I adore it. And in fact, when my health, um, I had to give up my job because you can keep researching and writing. It was the teaching of my students that 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 tore my heart out, and mm. um, yeah, that made the job so worthwhile. It was just magic, and yeah, I still to this day miss it. I yeah. can imagine. Okay, yeah. Okay, so then you take your hand to writing. What is the first thing that you decide to write in terms of long form outside of what you're writing for work? You're going to laugh at this. <laughs> I had this great idea. I, I decided I want to write fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I, my very first book was basically a, a, a vampire fantasy novel. Of course and it was. Of course <laughs> yeah. it was. But this is before Twilight. This is yeah. before Twilight. Right. So as I'm writing, it was much darker and everything and had all, you know, different mm. lands, worlds and everything. And I submitted it to my agent who basically said, look, it's got potential, but you're a long way away. You know? And she was <laughs> Keep right. trying. Yeah. <laughs> and then while I'm rewriting and doing all this, of course, Twilight hits the things and um, just becomes incredible and then all these imitations if you like some excellent and some not so excellent appear so by the time I was ready to sort of submit it again it was the vampire was dead and buried you know cross at its chest and garlic strewn everywhere I there was no way so that book's never seen the light of day but then I did turn to YA fantasy and why that I think because, again, I was teaching, I realised that um, it was basically using a lot of the Greek and Roman myths, which I realised there was a great gap in a lot of young people's knowledge. Like I grew up knowing them and I couldn't believe that they didn't. And as soon as I started telling one, they were just 
fascinated the students. They just loved them. And how do I not know this stuff, you know? And so I started to introduce them to Ovid and, and things like that. But also they can be quite dense and difficult because they're also very political. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of symbolism and meaning in those stories. So I thought, oh, damn it, I'm just going to try and draw out the wonderful meanings and the basic story and, and sort of use them as craft them into my own fantasy. So I did that. That was why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Talk to me about your path to publication with the first book. Well, I okay, remembering I didn't succeed at all with that first first one. Yeah, um, yeah. I just um, submitted it to my agent who said, yep, that, that You that's had an agent? Book. Yes, yes, I had from the first book. She, yeah, it was still with me. And then I basically, another friend who's an author said, oh, Karen, because I gave it to him to read. He said, I love this. And he said, he showed it to his publisher without me knowing. Mm. I know, I mean, as an act of kindness. Oh, yeah. of course, of course. And the publisher offered. So wow. I actually brought the offer to my agent. And so I was one of those really lucky, lucky people who yeah. went the back door sort of thing, yeah. Mm. And, Still have to write a good story. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and basically they didn't, it was four books in that series, but I had to work for each contract. It didn't, well, yeah. I didn't get a four-book deal. I had to present the manuscript and get the contract. So, but I was very happy. I didn't realise you could do it any other way back then. So, mm. so that that was how. How did it feel when you kind of became a published author? I mean, because it's a it's a, tr- a career, you've, you're kind of changing careers then, aren't you? Yeah, I guess you are. I mean, I also, because I had friends who were writers, I had that quite realistic idea mm. about it. Like Sarah Douglas was one of my best friends. And she actually was what encouraged me too to write the wire novel because apparently I kept saying, oh, I'm going to write a book one day. I'm going to write a book one day. And she knew about the vampire one and um, she just said, oh, stop saying you're gonna and just do it. You know, she was so sick of me carrying on. Do you know, I worked on the shop floor for many years. That's where my career started. And I sold so many of her books. I know. She was just amazing. And I still love her books. They're my, Mm. I go back to them, her and um, Anne McCaffrey. But oh no, gosh, so, I sold a squillion of those as well. Oh, I love Anne McCaffrey. <laughs> yeah. I was a realist about look, there's quite a few people who can get published, and some only ever write one book and that's all they ever mm. want to. I did want to make a career of it. But I know what the arts are like, you know, having wanted to be an actress one day. You I kept my I was lucky I had a job I loved as well. So I just mm. did side by side and I would do my scholarly writing you know in my work hours you know proper work hours and be lucky if two people ever read what you wrote you know that you spent ages mm-hmm. on and then I did the creative writing on weekends and in the evenings so 
that was how I managed it for quite wow. a few years. Yeah, yeah, wow. All right, and then why did you go from YA um, to historical fiction? Did you transition or you went straight into historical fiction? I think I sort of transitioned. My trilogy, The Curse of the Bond Riders, and I probably, I don't know if I can say this here, they're being re-released. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're the first person I've told it to publicly. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, really lovely, thank you. Yes. Yeah. They're currently undergoing new covers with a different publisher, but and I don't know when, but that's so exciting. And it is. I love that they'll come back, they'll be back out there again. So basically the Curse of Bond Riders, which is set in like a fantasy renaissance Venice, but I did mm. really heavy research to get mm. the historical era right and then I fantasised it, you know, and that was wonderful. I love doing that. And then... They did quite well. And then I started writing another historical adult fantasy set in the era of Harewood the Wake, which right. is back in early British history, right? Wow. Um, my agent, she's wonderful. She's read it and she said, Karen, look, it's really, I only wrote the first few chapters. She said, I love your writing. I love how you've just put us in the era. It's, it's a time slip novel, right? Was. Yeah. And she said, I hate the lead character. How dare she leave her baby in a car and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she said, darling, darling. She said, and she doesn't speak like that. She's gorgeous. Just just forget the fantasy. Just write history. You're so good at the history. You love the history. Just write history. So that's how it happened. Oh, wow. I, I took my agent's advice, like you should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always, and I, I've spoken to a lot of um, historical fiction writers, but I wonder sometimes do you fall in the trap of research and how is it then you transition from the research to writing? Because, you know, research is endless, right? Yeah, yeah. Rabbit holes, as they say. And yes. yeah, I go down rabbit mazes. I just, yeah. yeah. And because I think that's what, you know, being an academic, if I came away with anything, I came away with the ability to do research, thank goodness. And I love the research. And you're so right. And that's why my novels, when I, my first draft, Escapades was over 200,000 words. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I deliberately overwrite it and I write all the history in. And then my big job before anybody ever reads it is go back. What does the reader really need to know? Oh, Karen, that's bullshit. Take that out. They don't need to know about wow. that. So I pull out a great deal. And then, of course, my editor pulls out more. They know I do that. And that's discipline, you know. Yes. And I, I now just give over to writing the history in and now I'll pull it out mm. later. Yeah, wow. And how to be there. Yeah, yeah. So if you're working on a new book, tell yeah. me how the process works. I guess for you, places first. Is it? Yeah, I think you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is actually. Yeah. Place and era, they come together, don't they? Yeah. The place. Yeah. yeah. And then with tribula with the escapades of Tribulation Johnson, I knew the era, but that with that era came one of the real historical figures, and that was Afro Ben. I couldn't write mm. about that period and the theatre without writing about, you know, the first woman, professional woman playwright, Afra Ben. Mm. So that was a, a benefit because then I got a great timeline. I used her life oh, well, yeah. as, as a basic timeline. And then you shove in all the political events, all mm -hmm. the religious, major religious upheavals. And, again, my first draft probably had every single frigging one. <laughs> and then you don't realise you don't need them all. And with the one I'm writing at the moment, the place came, which was Scotland, the era is 1780s and it's around whiskey smuggling, which was just amazing mm. and it was illicit distilling. And um, it's not so much that process of actually making the product, it's all the politics and religion mm. and community around that that just weaves its own almost mm. wonderful story. So 
that's sort of the process. With but I mean, that's how we live our lives, isn't it? It's not just us. Everything weaves into it, and oh, even so when true. you don't want it, you know, it is so true. So the characters come by. How do they come by to you? They come by through an idea, a story, or they usually based on a historical figure. Both. Yeah, the Brewer's Tale was about beer making because when I learned that women were the original brewers and here we were, you know, in the process of looking at opening a brewery or or maybe doing something like that, that actually came about because of the book. But everywhere, every single person I turned to to sort of talk to about brewing was a man. Mm. And I kept thinking, how are women there? What's happened? You know, I remember this great quote um, by this fabulous historian who said, when a venture prospers, women fade from the scene. Mm. And that's almost a theme, actually, mm. in books, you know, where women were really important and suddenly mm. really back. And certainly that was the with escapades as well. But um, what, what was the question again, Cheryl? Sorry, now I've lost the question. What were we at? Yeah, no, no. I was talking about character and how character oh. come into it. Yeah. Yeah. So with The Brewer's Tale, that was more the actual production line of beer making and women's involvement. So I had to invent a character. So the characters were invented, but I always put real historical figures through them. And, in fact, the wife of Bath appears in that book. People don't realise a lot of the time the good wife of Bath was written way after, but she first appears in that book and she appears two years after the events of the good wife of Bath. And she was only meant to be in there for a chapter and then disappear. And in my head it was how I imagined the wife of Bath would be in her 50s, what happened. And I loved her so much. And it's like she was already this bolshy character that said, hey, lady, you're not writing me out yet. I'm here to stay for a while longer. So she becomes a main character. And I always said I'd go back and write her story. So that was character-driven. But, again, I had Chaucer's poem to guide me and history. And then, um, yeah, with Escapades it was character and time. And with this one, there is one, uh, with the Scottish one, there is one major real character that I'm weaving in. But what's what I've done, which I've never done before, I'm taking him out of his real time when he lived. Oh, yeah. wow. Is yeah. it at the height of his power 20 years later and right. putting him back and putting him in my time because <laughs> I need him in my time. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've never done that before, so that's a bit tricky. When you and I and I've heard authors talk about this, which I find that a, a, a difficult concept to kind of grapple with, is characters going off and doing their own thing. Yeah, yeah, I used to think that too. I used to think, pull the other one. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry Talk- used to say stuff like that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I do. I, it's so common. I hear it so often. It's really true. It's really yeah. true. And that's what um, The Good Wife of Bath did to me. Seriously, she was meant to be there one, maybe two chapters, and it was not, not, not. I actually nah. had to design the second part of the novel because I realised I needed her. You know, she yeah. she put her head above the parapet and said, no, lady, I'm here. And um, even with the book I'm writing now, there's a character that I invented that, that suddenly become very important. And mm. uh, and Escapades too, there are a couple of the actors in the theatre. Nearly all the actors are real people. Like there's lots of real people in Escapades. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can feel it. Do you miss people? When you leave them? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I do. I really do. Yeah, it's funny. You feel 
they become part of you. It's yes, it's, and, and I talk about them like they're even my fictional <laughs> like tribulations real to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, talk to me about your nonfiction. What did you write? Oh, okay. I wrote a book called Consuming Innocence, Young People yeah. and Popular Culture, because that was sort of my specialty area. I taught popular culture at uni. And when I talk about popular culture, it, it I realised very early on, it was very hard in the university I was at to teach literature to the student body. They just weren't engaged. I found people weren't reading like they used to. You know, we used to mm-hmm. go to, we'd go to uni, we'd be set 12 books in a semester. Mm. Students were whinging about being set two. <gasps> Wow. So I thought, okay, there's got to be a way around this. So a a common, uh, a level playing field was popular culture. So for example, I used The Simpsons and through The Simpsons took them into Romeo and Juliet or and Basil's film was another way to do it. Or Homer's Homer's Odyssey again, Mm. you know, and then, you know, you use like a superhero movie and then go back and do the Greek myths because they're the first superheroes with the gods, Mm. you know. And Mm -hmm. so when I say I taught popular culture, I, I taught it almost on a, you know, a continuum because Shakespeare's plays were the popular culture of their era. Mm. So that was the way I did it. And um, the book then became about how to sort of access children and learn about your kids by sharing their popular culture and getting them to share yours. You know, mm. my kids still love 80s music, the poor mm. darlings, you know. <laughs> and, um, but, like, and I did, funny, I did two chapters or was it one or two on Barbie, believe it or not. And now, Oh, wow, there you I go. Know, did you know yeah. that Barbie was invented as a product of war because she was, it was the designer of rockets and weaponry that designed her, had the, well, she was porn and violence because she was basically a, a doll in an adult newspaper in Europe, right? Lily Bunch or something was called. Look, I can't remember exactly. Forgive me if I'm wrong. But anyway, they then the uh, Ruth Handler saw it and took the design of the doll back. Got got them made. Got them made in, in um, Asia somewhere. I think Japan or China. I can't remember. And when the dolls were then shipped back to the states, they had nipples. So she spent ages filing the nipples off. Yeah. Wow. But the idea is that Barbie was born of a weapon of mass destruction and porn. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. I did read somewhere that her figure, her initial figure, that her her torso could not have supported her if that was the shape of her body. So that's, that, right. that's all changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've got to say I loved Barbie. I had a really good relationship with Barbie. Well, I don't know if it was good, but, you know, I dreamed of being Barbie. <laughs> oh, didn't we all? I had loads yeah. of Barbies. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I loved my Barbie. And I'll go and see the movie. I can't wait to see the movie. Mm, yeah, and I've heard so kind of... many good things about it. Yeah, yeah so I think she's got lots of toys. They're tabula rasas in many ways, though they come with much more context these days. But we write onto the toys that we love what we want and we take mm. We want, you know. Mm. I think I hope kids still do that. I mean, we mm. have probably that in a way that's not as available now. But they're imaginary bouncing boards, aren't they? That we mm. just mm. used to enjoy and explore. It's it's great. Uh, so, do you think historical fiction is your genre now? Yeah, I do. And what I love, but it's like you know, I often think about this about genre. Um, it, you know, you worry a bit about being pigeonholed, but historical fiction just means you're telling a story located in history. That's right. It has romance. It has crime. It has elements of fantasy sometimes, not a lot. But, um, you know, it has so many other really psychological thriller, you know. I'll tell you, Karen, I mean, our readers 
our readers very, we reach, as you know, hundreds yes. and thousands, and they all have something to say um, about reading, about story. Never, very, very rarely do they talk about genre. They just talk about good story. That's exactly right. And that's what I think too. So I sometimes mm. find it problematic and I really, really, it sticks in my core, say, for example, the way romance is denigrated mm. as a genre. And yet to me, every book is a romance and most great stories have romance in them and they're mm. central to the story, no matter what other genre they're put in. Absolutely. Yeah, so I find that fascinating that we love does make the world go round and it sells books, you know. Yeah, it it's does. The highest selling genre in the world, and yet people are so ready to denigrate it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Karen Brooks, we're out of time. Always lovely chatting. Thank you so much. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.